the Mac Observer's Mac Geek app number 341 for Monday, July 11th, 2011. Observers, Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. We try to provide answers to the questions. We all provide each other with some tips. And in the end, we all learn a little something more about the Mac. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. You're getting a little more specific, John. <laughs> For those of you following along, Mr. Braun has uh, gone from, uh, I think, did you say the universe first and then planet Earth? And now you've kind of been narrowing in on, uh, on where you are. I guess I guess you'd have to have listened to not only the regular shows, but the premium shows to hear the evolution of this. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll 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 dig one level deeper, kind of like a Inception. OK. All right. So we'll, we'll keep going with this. Uh, maybe maybe in the end, we'll uh, or one of you could put together. Uh, a little snippet of all of the all of John's uh, descriptive <laughs> locations in a row together, because that would be an interesting thing to play. So if anybody gets inspired, uh, there you go. There's an idea. Submission to the show. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you know, I promised at the end of last show, which was uh, 340 premium, uh, that I would talk a little bit about where I went last weekend. I went to Fish's Super Bowl nine festival and uh and there's a couple of things that were relevant to to what we do here um, going from, uh, well, whatever. Uh, AT&T service was fantastic there. I asked the festival organizers how many people were there. They said there were 30,000 people all crammed into this one racetrack. And, uh, and AT&T service was so good that I was actually able to do a FaceTime call over 3G. Yes, my iPhone was jailbroken. Uh, a FaceTime call over 3G with my son who was at, at his uh, my, at my uncle's house, actually, in Maine. And, uh, and it worked flawlessly. Uh, plenty of bandwidth. I was able to show him around the campsite and everything. So, uh, so they did something so, right. So, so what did they do? Did you see? I would imagine that, if anything, they would bring in temporary mobile... That was my, points that's or my antennas. Assumption. Yeah. Okay. To, to, to provide, because yeah, I mean, you only have a fixed number of clients that you can serve on any one tower. So I would, I would, assume yeah, I would imagine, that they, I was imagine there's a maximum. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. that was nice. So it was good. You know, it was, it was nice to see because I've been to things like, you know, other concerts or sporting events or whatever. And, uh, you know, as people fill in service gets worse and worse and worse, but whatever they did up there, they did a great job. So I just, it, you know, it, there is hope. For uh, for our wireless phone carriers, it seems. And then three uh, G, uh, and you got three G three G service. I had three G service, yeah, yeah, with uh, with obviously plenty of bandwidth and decent latency. I mean, it, you know, we were just having a normal video chat. It was totally fine. Okay, yeah. Because I was as as a little little aside. I've noticed this now on the Verizon, but but I was doing a bit of a biking and, and all that and hanging out at the beach this weekend. And I did notice that one of the beaches I was at, and I actually sent a few photos. But I noticed at one point now now some of you who have the I, any eye device, I think when you, when you see the 3G, that's good. When you see the little circle, that means you're getting substandard cell right. coverage. And or, then of or course, the lower... AT and T people have a middle ground where it says E, which is their edge coverage. <laughs> uh, so yeah. But I noticed that I was at a location and I was trying to do some Instagram and send some photos, nice photos of the beach. And and at first, where I was at, I, it showed a little circle and actually the upload failed. But then it clicked over to 3G. So. 
uh, some of it, I think, just has to do with where you're at, because right. I moved a little bit closer to, you know, civilization and, th- and then it got better. So interesting. Interesting. Cool. Uh, and then, of course, Small Dog Electronics, as they have, I believe, for previous festivals, uh, donated and helped out uh, with a bunch of Macs at uh, what they call the House of Live Fish, which is a cool little thing. It actually is cool. They they air condition this tent and uh, and you can go in, you can uh, listen to some music, you can copy some of their uh, live shows over to your iPhone or iPad. And they even had some stations set up where you could remix tunes and stuff. But it really was just a great little place to hang out. So it was cool. Oh, to see oh fish, fish is uh, kind of like the dead. They, they, they don't mind uh, live uh, recording. No, they're in fact, their whole fan base was built by, you know, oh. by that. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. And small dog. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was good. Like they're they're up in uh, New Hampshire, right? Uh, they, they formed in Vermont, but they do have a store, a okay. store now here in New Hampshire. So, uh, so those were the, uh, those were the, the semi related things that, that came up. Uh, but we have a lot of questions to get to John and, Go. uh, and so I want to get to those, but I do also want to mention our first sponsor for the show, which is smile, uh, at smilesoftware.com. And their PDF pen software, which is really, really cool. Uh, it, it's one of the it's one of those pieces of software that I use all the time. Uh, you hope it's, it's for the Mac, obviously, um, or maybe not so obviously, but it is for the Mac. Uh, you can open a PDF in this. You can rearrange things. You can uh, edit the PDF where uh, you can highlight text and actually change the text of the PDF, but it still stays in the form of the PDF. And then the thing I use it for probably more often than anything else. Sometimes I use it to fill in forms, not PDF forms uh, because, but although I could use it for those too. preview will typically do those. And that's what PDFs open in for me. But, uh, but you can fill out non PDF uh, capable forms or non form capable PDFs by simply placing text on top of the PDF. Uh, so you just place it in the spot where you'd want it to be on that form and it's there. And then of course you can paste in your signature too, if you've got that scanned and, uh, and it makes for a great experience filling out a form or a contract. If I need to, you know, fill in some stuff and sign it works. Awesome. Uh, PDF pen, uh, and PDF pen pro are available from smilesoftware.com. Uh, they both have a free trial, of course. And then, uh, once you're hooked, Fifty nine ninety five for PDF Pen and ninety nine ninety five for PDF Pen Pro. PDF Pen Pro will also let you create forms. Uh, so if you're creating PDFs, you can do it right there. So this is all available. The place to start is SmileSoftware.com. And with that, we'll let Pierre ask us the first question here. Pierre writes, uh, the info page on Lion at Apple.com states that a core two duo or Xeon processor is okay amongst others. The about this Mac info pane on my Mac tells me that I have a dual core Xeon processor. The confusing part is that the general comment is that a dual core processor can't be upgraded to lion. However, this appears not to be the case. If it is a Xeon class processor, my guess that this is because it is because the Xeon is a 64 bit processor. Bottom line, I think is that if you have a Mac pro, you can upgrade to lion, uh, but I'm a little confused. And I think what's confusing Pierre is he's confusing the term dual core with core duo. Now, fair enough confusion point to make, right, John? But uh, the core duo processor can't be upgraded 
because it's only a 32-bit processor. This was on the first MacBook Pros uh, that came out. They had a, a Core Duo. It was a dual-core processor, but uh, the Core 2 Duo, which came out a little bit later, can be upgraded uh, in most cases because it uh, it is 64-bit capable. Is that is that am I getting that right, John? I'm with you. And to add to the confusion, Dave, having worked with Intel processors, there was actually a core solo for a while. Oh, but but really? the, the, the but but you bring up a good point. And, and I think the whole issue here is 32 bit processor versus 64 bit processor. Right. And, and what do we mean by that? And I don't want to get into a lesson here about processor architecture, but but I do want to touch on this because I did find a page at Intel site that I think really summarizes what you want to look for here. And what you really need, I think, as you mentioned, is a 64-bit processor. And, and to me, I just want to, for, for the, uh, to educate the audience here, what is a 64-bit processor? And I found a page on Intel site, which I think succinctly describes this. And we will, of course, link to it in the lovingly handcrafted show notes that I will put together. But it's called the Intel 64 Archit- Architecture. And, and it touches on two things. One is the amount of memory you can address, and the other is the size of the registers in the processor. And that's what right. the Intel 64 architecture covers. So one, it has to do with memory addressing, which I still have mixed feelings about that because some people define 64-bit computing as being able to address 64 bits of memory, and I don't know if I totally buy that that's 64-bit computing. But having the ability to address or, or deal with information in 64-bit chunks, I would say is definitely what I consider 64-bit computing. And all other things being equal, if you can deal with information in the same amount of time in 64-bit chunks versus 32-bit chunks, then you're going to get a performance increase. And that's really what, what what's being said here. And, and it's okay. confusing because Xeon doesn't have, uh, Xeon is a 64-bit architecture. Okay. As is the Core 2 Duo. Right, so. right. Cool. Well, that got way geekier than we usually do in question number one. But, uh, but no, that's I, wanted, good stuff. I wanted to no, geek out good. because it is confusing because the, the, the problem is they use the word core. Correct. And, and it's confusing because some core products are 32 bit and some are 64 bit. But I, I think we just cleared that up. And then yeah. Xeon is its own more server class. And, and those, as far as I know, all the Xeon things are 64 bit. OK, right. I, th- I believe that's right. Yeah. All right, uh, back to Lion. Uh, Corey sends in, well, this. Hey, Dave and John. Corey here. I'm just testing out this brand new iPhone app that I happened to stumble across. And I thought I would send in a tip for the imminent Lion release. Uh, Anyway, if you're like me and you've got a bunch of Macs laying around the house and at the office and family members that you play IT support for, you don't necessarily want to go download Lion, you know, several times and then have to install it on each computer. That sucks. So instead, if you just download it on one computer, go find the Mac installer that you downloaded from the App Store on uh, using the Finder. It's probably in the Applications or Utilities directory or somewhere in there. Shouldn't be too hard to find. If you right-click on it and click Show Package Contents, then go to Contents, and then Shared Support, you'll see a disk image, uh, install esd.dmg. And if you drag that into Disk Utility, you can burn it to either a DVD, or heck, these days you can get a 4 gigabyte thumb drive from the grocery store for less than 10 bucks. And now you've got your 
brand spanking new Lion install either a thumb drive or DVD restore disc. And you can use that to install Lion, or you can keep it around for a rainy day in case something happens to your hard drive. And it works just like the old Snow Leopard disc, so no problem. Uh, anyway, keep up the good work, and uh, have a good one. Thanks, Corey. You, uh, you rock. Uh, and that's a, that's a great little tip, because that, that would be a pain in the neck, especially if you're paying for your bandwidth. But, uh, but it's, but, uh, so that's good to know. And it looks like Lion will be out, what, uh, probably within the, well, certainly within the next three weeks because Apple said July. Now, now, my recollection, Dave, is that if you do download from the App Store the Lion installer, I do believe you should be able on any other Mac App Store enabled computer, you should be able to take that file itself and bring it over as well. Uh, is, this, is this your, your, yeah, or, or yeah. I think yeah, I think it needs to be a, a Snow Leopard machine, but yeah, you can just take that file and run it. Needs to be on an HFS Plus volume if you're going to do that. If you're going to move it around, so right. be, care- be careful moving it to your network drives. Um, it will not run if it's on you know some like like I put it on my Drobo and it wouldn't run. But yeah. uh, as soon as I copied it back over to an HFS Plus volume, then it then that file ran. Of course, we're, we're talking yeah. about two slightly different things. Corey's talking about the burned disk image, which is inside this file that resides in your applications right. folder. Which I'll call you, the Lion installer, right. which is downloaded from the app store. Right. And that sits in your applications folder. But the trick is you got to You can't install Lion and then go move that file because it will be deleted during the installation process. So you got to get it before the install uh, completes. I'm I'm hesitant, Dave. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't go down this path, but I don't know if I'm ready to jump in immediately to lion um i am actually can i give you my 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 but but there's good reason to be hesitant so yeah go ahead well i'll give you my uh, uh, my capsule review is that it seems os 10 lion seems to be iDevicing max a bit too much for my taste as far as the UI and just some of the other features, now I know there's a whole bunch of other features. And of course, if you go to apple.com slash Mac OS X slash what's dash news slash features HTML, you will see the 250 plus new features, which I'm looking at right now, which is why I could read that to you. And we'll link to it, of course. But uh, the, the UI enhancements concern me because I, I'm not entirely comfortable with all of them. Now, I know you can you can switch some of them off to make it more Mac-like, but, but, but that's my initial take on a lot of the UI-based aspects of Lion. Yeah, a lot of the other of the things scroll, are great. The like, scrolling and the, both the scroll bars and the, the, the mouse direction. The mouse direction thing I got used to pretty quick. Uh, in fact, I don't even think about it anymore. Uh, even moving from machines running it to machines not running it, um, I, I tend to adapt. It's yeah, like, so to me, there's yeah. the, the technical plumbing things right. and then the UI things, the UI things. I'm not that crazy about the, the technical things. Like I think if anything, I mean, for, for what it costs, I mean, file vault two, I mean, to me, that, that's just that, that should have been done in the last version and they fixed it. So right. that in and of itself, I think is, especially in this day and age of, you know, security scares and just securing your data and who knows where it's going to go and all that. I, I, they, that in and of itself, I think is worth the price of the OS. So, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yep. All right, go. I'm sorry. So, I, I no, just had to good. pontificate because I, I've had more than one person via Twitter or other means say to me, you know, I'm not really crazy about the UI aspect of Lion. And, yeah. and I, I, I don't, don't think I'm alone. No, I don't think you are. But I think it's one of those short lived things. 
I think it's just, you know, you, I will learn to love it. Yeah, we will. All, we all will. Right. <laughs> Apple dictates that we'll love it. And, and you just get used to it. I mean, right. There's always little things like that. It's like, oh, I missed the, you know, double scroll bars or whatever it was. And they, those actually did came, come back. But, you know, little things you're like, yeah, it's not there. OK, move on. It is what it is. All right. Uh, Kyle emails and writes. Recently, Mac drivers for my printer were released. Now, finally, I can plug my printer in without a PC. After trying to manage all my USB devices, I need some help with what things I need plugged into my Mac and what things I can plug into a hub. I have a 2007 Mac Mini, which only has four internal USB ports. Uh, I have uh, a USB hub with four ports, a Logitech headset, a Logitech keyboard, and a unifying receiver for the mouse. And uh, on the hub, I have another iPod cable, the printer now, which has its own power source and my time machine backup drive, which also has its own power source. So, John, you're all right. Mr. Power consumption here. Go. Well, I'm I'm going to start here, but, but I'll like to toss it back and forth. So, so I actually did find being all about the Apple support knowledge base. HT 4049. They have an article, Apple computer and displays. OK. Drawing peripherals through USB. Good. So, um, and that was good, but, but I think in general, the, the, the guideline you want to use here as far as how to arrange your USB peripheral. So when you have a machine that has a USB hub within it, which I think basically all Apple computers do, even though it may be, be a port, I, I think you call it a USB hub, but I think in general, they provide 500 milliamps of current. And, you know, I'll be clear here. That's current. Amps are a measure of current. Right. You know, there's power and voltage and all that, but they provide that much current. Uh, so I would say as a general guideline, when you're, when you're trying to think about what you want to plug into your computer, well, if it has one USB port, then that's easy because then that's just one. And right. as long as the peripheral doesn't it consume more than 500 milliamps, which I don't think many do, then you're cool. But when you have multiple that are spread across a hub, then you got to be a bit careful. Now, now, the good news is that if you go into System Profiler, when you plug a device in, as long as it's configured properly or the driver is configured properly, you will see the amount of current that it's going to draw. So I'd say in general, you may want to make a little chart and just take each of the devices. So when we got this email, it listed each of the devices. So I, what I would say is plug each one in, Go to the system profiler, see what the device reports as its requirements, and uh, hopefully it, it's correct. And just make a note of that. And as long as it doesn't exceed for any one port, 500 milliamps, then I think you're cool. It's good. The only other thing I want to mention is that when you're talking about an external hub, now there's two types. Now, one is what we're going to call bus powered. And those, I think, are kind of dangerous because the problem is they're really not buying you much except as a virtual extension of what's on your computer is that they draw on the current that is available on the computer itself. Yeah, that may. So right. All so, the, yeah. So all they're buying you similar to a USB hub or USB switch. Well, that, that may not be a good comparison, but power wise, they're not buying you anything because they're drawing on the power of whatever they're plugged into. And if you plug too many things into it, you will reach this current limit. And, that, and a lot of times a, maybe that's a hub that's not self-powered just to be clear. Correct. Right. It's just adding ports, but not any more power capacity. Right. And you bring up a good point. So I was going to differentiate. So you have two types of hubs. One is a bus powered. And what I mean by bus powered is that the computer itself is providing the power to the hub. Right. So it's basically extending the power or the current of the hub. The other is 
of course, as you're saying, Dave, is one that has an external power adapter, in which case you're starting fresh. So um, the only caution I would offer is that if you're using a hub without its own power supply, then you got to be careful because you may be exceeding the capabilities of the computer itself because you're basically just creating virtual a virtual extension of what's already in the computer. And then you could easily exceed the 500 milliamp uh, limit. Yeah, especially if you start stringing hubs together, and uh, which I've done. You know, I've had like 10 devices plugged in. But, you know, it, it depends on what you've got. You know, in his case, to get to Kyle's question, adding the printer uh, is fine. It doesn't matter because it's bringing its own power source with it. Uh, so really what you need to be careful of are the things that don't. Um but, you know, in my case, when I had, uh, you know, I, I, I had some USB extension thing. And so I wanted to have all my stuff on one side. So I just ran it out of one of my USB ports on my MacBook Pro. And I think I had like 11 things. But many of those things were not live at any point in time. I have, you know, had two uh, iPod dock connector cables because sometimes I like to use both. But most of the time I use none. Right. You know, and, and the same, you know, there was just lots of things. So I think if I would plugged everything in all at once it would have been a problem or turned everything on all at once. It would have been a problem, but right. you know, so just right. Yeah. Actually, what, what are you saying? Wise. So he's listing, so listing the devices that he had. So he says Logitech headset. Okay. I'm going to assume that's, that deserves a little power. Not a lot. Right. Logitech keyboard. Okay. Sure. You know, yeah, a little his, bit and then a receiver. But, but I, I, I suspect because he hadn't seen a problem is that the, the, the combination of them do not exceed. Right. Now, yeah, but his, you know, the printer was the only thing he was adding to it. And, uh, and so, you know, I think he's fine. I think he's totally fine. Uh, so, all right. Uh, you know, the next, the next question we got is pretty interest, uh, pretty interesting. Barry wrote us a little while back and said, okay, uh, with lion coming, I want to, uh, I, I went to system profiler to see what apps would have trouble. Other lion underline, uh, Everything in System Profiler works except every time I select applications, I get the spinning wheel followed by a crash. Uh, I've sent to Apple, but of course, that's like sending into the Roach Motel. Uh, same thing happened on a new uh, and little iMac. I cleared caches with Onyx, but I'm at a loss. And there was a crash report. And we went back and forth with with Barry on this, suggesting, oh, to go delete System Profiler, plist files, and this, and that didn't work. And finally, Barry stumbled onto it on his own. What he said, he tried Disk Warrior, everything. I, what he did was he went into the Finder, selected uh, System Profiler, which I believe is in the Application slash Utilities folder. And then he checked Open in 32-bit mode. Lo and behold, mm -hmm. everything worked just fine. When he went in there, uh, he found that there were quite a few uh, classic apps apps he deleted those and then he could go back out uncheck the open in 32-bit mode and sure enough uh system profiler ran just fine even when he clicked applications so there were some of these classic apps and he didn't say which ones uh, that were causing system profiler not to display application details when in 64-bit mode so i know a lot of you are going to be going through and and checking your apps and it is a good thing to do as we've talked about so if it crashes we wanted to share that little tip as to uh, as to why that's going to happen. Fascinating, though. And I never would have. I, I, don't, I would love to know what led Barry to try that. 
he must must have listened to an earlier podcast. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I even offered, you can run System Profiler from the command line or the terminal, as a matter of fact, and even that failed, which kind of shocked me. Right. Because that's, that's, uh, that's a way to do it that actually circumvents some of the UI processing that, that you get from the, the GUI version. And right. even that crashed. So to me, that was like a deep-seated embedded problem that, yeah, yeah. apparently well, one of these apps were just not written right. Yeah. Yeah. No, hats off. That that was <laughs> it's good troubleshooting. So yeah. Excellent. All right. Uh sponsor number two for this show is Circus Ponies with Notebook. Uh Circus Ponies Notebook is available for both the Mac and the iPad. Uh the idea behind Notebook is you create little uh well, they don't have to be little, they can start little and they can grow basically as big as you want. Little virtual notebooks. Uh for topics or uh, maybe events or, or, or projects or whatever you're doing. You can create these little notebooks. You can type right into them. And uh, it's just, it looks like white lined paper. It's very familiar interface. And then uh, you can pull other data in. You can pull in JPEGs. You can pull in PDFs. You can pull in audio files. And uh, maybe you have a, you know, a class you're taking and you recorded the lecture and then, uh, and then you're in there and you got all your notes right there along with the lecture. The cool part is, you could do that on your iPad and transfer it up to your Mac. Maybe do some edits on your Mac, send it back down to your iPad. It's a two-way sync between the, uh, between the apps on the two devices. And it really lets you do some cool, cool stuff. Of course, once you've got data in the app, you can tag it, you can put keywords on it, and then you can search for it using anything you remember about that piece of data. It could be, I know I did it last Tuesday, or I know there was something that I mentioned for my friend Kurt, but I can't remember what it was. Well, now you just search for Kurt oh, and boom, up it comes. So uh, Circus Ponies Notebook for the Mac is uh, available as a free trial from circusponies.com. Once you are hooked, it's $49.95. So spend 50 bucks, save a nickel. And notebook for the iPad is, of course, available at the App Store because that's how it works. And it's 30 bucks. Save a penny for twenty nine ninety nine. But the place to start is CircusPonies.com. And then Steph wrote us. Steph says, I have a Mac Mini running 10.6.8. The other night I downloaded a single .rar file from a file serve. It was supposed to be an audio file. When the file finished downloading, I double clicked it and the file disappeared. My downloads window was still open from Safari. And when I selected the download file to open, a drop down told me that it could not because it was no longer in the downloads folder and it was moved. Do you guys have any thoughts as to what happened? John F. Braun, go. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, of course I do. But, but first you may ask yourself, what is a RAR file, Dave? Because that, that's kind of obscure. Is it an audio file of a lion making its morning sound? No. Oh. How is that? Yeah, That's pretty good. <laughs> no, but um, uh, RAR, uh, and, and actually, yeah, I got the Wikipedia. Rochelle, I didn't even know this. Rochelle Archive, huh? Really? So it's a semi-proprietary format, but I think that the main thing it's used for is when you have a file you want to break up in, in pieces or just a file you want to distribute, it's a way to archive a file similar to zip and, and other things. And as far as I know, Dave, this is a format that is handled by the OS if you double-click on the file and you try to decompress it. I, I think that is what was happening here. Yeah, RAR files, anytime I've pulled them down, and they do, you know, they're, they're, I guess 
people use them a lot for music files or, or large audio files too, because one of the things that RAR does and what I think it's most commonly used for is to take one large file and break it up into several small chunks, uh, which right. of course was very, very popular back in the day of, you know, downloading over a, a modem dial up connection. But again, even now it, it can be helpful. So, so right. yeah, and you'll see that in the extension is that I think typically it'll have dot R O O dot R O one O two. And those are the pieces of the file. And yep. somehow magically, I think the first or yeah, I think the first file knows, Oh, there are more of these that I'm going to expect. And when you click on me, I'm going to bring all the others into me right. and create the, the, the whole, but yeah, it's because of limited, the, the limited file size that you had with news groups and email and stuff like that. Right. That's right. So, so, but I think, I think what's happening here is, uh, is that the system saw that and in, and instead of having all these files, it pulled them into one and, uh, and decompressed it. And that's why it disappeared. I, I think everything's okay. Right. I mean, we, is that what that is to answer Steph's concern, right? What I think, it, yeah. And what I suggested, what I think happened was I suspect that, well, I wonder if it, 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 does he mention Safari? Yes, he does. So Safari, I think Safari may have considered it a safe file and I think it may have automatically decompressed it. Right. And disappeared it on him. Right. Now, the way you could find out, of course, is to go into Safari, Preferences, General, and disable open, open safe files. And then when you see that file, I would get info on it and see what application is set up to handle RAR files. And actually, in the case of one of my systems, it's actually stuff it. But I think on Mac systems, there's something buried deep in the, in the system, in system slash library slash core services called Apple Archive Utility. And I suspect that may have grabbed it and decompressed it. And yeah, when I think that happens, then I think you lose the link to the file in Safari. Right. So I don't think it's a virus. I, I, I understand the concern that, yeah, all of a sudden something <laughs> that was there disappeared. But, but I think it's, it's due to de- decompression by the system and not some nefarious uh, a virus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, back in show 339, we talked about, uh, well... Mark will help us. Mark says in show 339, a listener was wondering if there was a way to play unsupported video formats on the Apple TV. There is. You need to use a combination of two programs, both of which are free. The first is Air Video Server from InMethod.com. And then you point Air Video Server at a folder of videos and it can convert them on the fly and send to an iPhone or iPad with the Air Video app installed. To make this work with the Apple TV, you also need to install Air Flick, which is something Erica Sadoon made, uh, which links to the Air video server and sends the converted video stream to Apple TV using AirPlay. Once the video starts playing, you can control it with Apple TV's remote. The setup is a bit odd, but it's been working well for me for the past few months. All right, cool. Thanks, Mark. That's um, it is. That's convoluted, but uh, but it gets the job done, right? <laughs> That, that that's the part that sucks is we're living in this, you know, world where it kind of has to be convoluted. And, and I think Apple gets that, but I don't think they want to roll out. I think that's part of what this iCloud, you know, thing is, is eventually built to solve is your media everywhere. And you don't have to, you don't have to jump through these hoops, but hopefully they, hopefully they get that right. We shall see. And any comments on this before we uh, play Michael's comment on a, on the similar topic? Hmm. Just that there are a lot of other uh, streaming uh, 
server options out there and it seems apple uh may have to play a little catch up because i've seen uh yeah yeah i, I wouldn't even get into it because there, there's <laughs> a number of them yeah, yeah it's true well i could actually i have to dig through my notes the uh for some of the uh events that i went to but uh but yeah they're 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 Quite a few people out there that, that have other streaming media solutions that I think are not quite as closed. So. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, Roku's got, you know, their thing going. And uh, Seagate's got one, too, that I've had the opportunity to check out. And it, yeah, well, they work well. You know, while we're at it, let me look at my stack of stuff here. Let me yeah, see. Yeah, well, you, you look through really your stack. Let's, uh, let's, let, let's hear Michael's comment, and we'll come Go. back to it. Hi, Dave. Hi, John. Hi, Pete. This is Michael in Garland, Texas. On show 339, James asked about streaming his vast collection of TV and movie, TV shows and movies to his, from his Mac Pro to his Apple TV. If he doesn't already know about it, he should consider Plex. That's P-L-E-X. It's at PlexApp.com. What Plex is is a server and a client. Uh, they can run the same machine, different machines, uh, and it can stream TV shows and movies from one to the other. Uh, the server uh, does a great job of going to the internet and scraping all the metadata about your TV shows and movies. It downloads high resolution uh, artwork, full screen uh, posters, banners, uh, even theme music for TV shows in some cases, and then uh, serves all that up to any number of clients. Clients can run on another Mac on uh, an iOS device or on an Apple TV if it's jailbroken. And the client just gives this gorgeous full-screen, you know, couch-friendly interface where you can click on movie posters and watch a movie. You can scroll through episodes of TV shows as you hear the theme sh- theme music for that TV show and, huh. and then pick, pick an episode to watch. You get to see the synopsis, all the other factoids about the movies and TV episodes while you're scrolling through them. Anyway, it's gorgeous. Check out some demo videos on the website or on YouTube. Uh, also, uh, I don't have an Apple TV, so I have never tried jailbreaking one or installing that client, but it's uh, worth considering if that's what he's looking to do. And that's it. Bye. Cool. Thanks, Michael. And yeah, the Apple TV two is, uh, from what I understand, jailbreakable. So if you're willing to head down that path, that's that, that's that gives you a a couch. What what, what did he say? Couch capable, couch comfortable, couch capable. Mm-hmm, that, was, mm-hmm. that was good. I like that. All right. So uh, so you you found uh, a couple of others worth mentioning. John? Well, I got one here. Um, have you heard of a Slingbox, Dave? Oh well, yeah. That's a whole different ball of wax, right? But I like it because their claim is watch your TV anywhere. Right. And at least the, the at the event I was recently at, well, well, they got an iPad app. Yeah. So they their do. claim is, yeah. hey, if you got an iPad and you got media and you want to stream it to your device. So I understand it's basically a streaming solution. It is. Of course, Slingbox's claim to fame. This is interesting because I hadn't really thought about it in the way that you're talking about. Okay. You're, you're talking about using it on your local network, at least potentially from wherever your media is to your, to your iPad. But, but, but Slingbox works a little bit differently uh, unless they've changed it. Their, their whole idea is that they stream from your TV to whatever uh, either computer or device you want to watch it on. So it's streaming just the, uh, the, the picture, you know, and the, uh, and the audio, it's not actually streaming the data, but uh, I mean, it's, it's converting it to data. So it's taking the signal. It, it acts as though it is your TV, right? It gets in the way it interfaces with your, your Apple TV or your, uh, your TiVo or whatever you've got your cable box, right? It, 
it sets up right. as though it's a TV and then it, instead of displaying it locally, it streams it off to whatever device you have. But if somebody sits down and turns on your TV, they'll see the same thing you're seeing, even if you're in a hotel room in Ohio. Yeah, my take was that no matter where you are, which I think is their claim to fame, right? whether it be in your home or yeah, it's traveling, true. that's right. you can stream the content from your device, whatever, uh, from your you know, t- whatever it may be yeah. to your, and I, I think maybe, I think it's relatively new, or at least they were showing it at the show was, Hey, you got an iPad. You want to stream your TV shows on your whatever yeah. to your iPad. You can watch it. So I think that's kind of neat. And I think it, uh, it, it may coincide with some other solutions, but, but I thought that was neat. And then I got to find that the, they, they announced an alliance with some other folks and yeah, let, let, let's, uh, Get back cool. to the show, and I may have more for that. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Uh, you know, while we're on that subject, Chris had a uh, semi-related question, uh, and Chris asked, "What software do you guys use to stream video to the TiVo HD from your Macs, and also to pull video off the TiVo to your Macs? Do I need Roxio Toast?" The TiVo preference pane seems like it only allows streaming of pictures and music to the TiVo. Maybe I missed something. All right. So, uh, John, why don't we take this back and forth, but you, you start. Uh, hold on. Who, who do we have here? All right. I'll, t- I'll take it and I'll hand it to you. So uh, for, uh, I'll let John ad- address the uh, TiVo pref pane in a minute, but uh, as far as streaming to the TiVo, I use an app. It's a free app. Uh, called Pi TiVo X, P-Y-T-I-V-O-X. And uh, if your TiVo supports it, which Series 3 H and HD TiVos and Premiere TiVos do, uh, you can stream the data to it. Otherwise, you can copy, you can use that to copy the data into your now playing list, the the, the show. But, uh, but what's cool about Pi TiVo X is if the data is stored on your Mac in a format that TiVo can natively interpret, it just sends the native data and it doesn't try to do anything funny. However, if, and there's only a couple of formats that TiVo support. So if you happen to have a file that's not in a TiVo supported format, Pi TiVo X will transcode it on the fly as it beams it off to your TiVo. So you could uh, very easily play a uh, a video of uh, an unsupported file format directly to your TiVo as soon as you got it uh, using Pi TiVo X. And it's, it's awesome. It works great. We use it constantly. We stream all of our movies to the TV with it. We, we don't, that's the only way we get movies to the TV now is, uh, is through the Pi TiVo. So it's cool. And then, uh, cool. and then getting, getting movies back. I use I TiVo, which is also a free app uh, and that'll, that'll pull data that, TiVo allows anyway, it'll, it'll pull it back from the TiVo to your Mac and you can set it up in a bunch of different formats. So it's good. But he mentioned the TiVo pref pane too, John. And yeah, and that's the lowest common denominator, but it's free and that's good. So the, uh, and they call it TiVo desktop, but it's a pref pane, but here's two ways you can get to a secret feature. So one, and this answers the question, how do I get stuff from my computer to the TiVo? So one, if you start up, uh, at least my experience, Dave, with the latest version of it, the pref pane, if you hold down the command key and then click on the pref pane, yep. normally you will see a, I believe, a uh, music and a photos tab. But if you click on the command key, you will then see a video tab. Ooh. Now, of course, the other way is you can go into, 
and I guess this is uh, fiddling with the uh, prep with the, uh, the the prep file, but you can actually fiddle and you know I'll put a link to it in our show notes, of course. But you can fiddle this to be a a permanent option. But then what happens is that if you have a video on your Mac in MP2 format, and this is why it's not the greatest, but again it's free. Um, at some point, if you drop a video from what I recall, I haven't done this in a while, Dave. But but if you drop a video onto your Mac at some point it'll realize, oh, there's a video here. I should push it onto the TiVo. But but the only limitation, which I think is kind of limiting, yeah, is it has to be MP2. The other solutions, I think, are much better because they do all the transcoding from all the other formats. So you don't have to do any work ahead of time. And I found that the TiVo app was a processor hog. Now, I have a huge oh, iTunes sure. library. No, it's like always running at, at like <laughs> 9 or 10%. No, it's crazy um, because it just sits there all the time. And so I, I turned it off and it was because it was constantly reparsing my iTunes library. I don't know why, but, uh, but I guess just based on the size of my iTunes library, it would chew up a ton of RAM and a ton of CPU space. So I, I used um, uh, Galleon, G-A-L-L-E-O-N to stream music to my uh, to my TiVo. And that works out really well. It's mm. another another open sourcer. Yeah. Yeah. I'd forgotten all about that. I got so used to using it that i forgot i was even using it but it's it's nice especially at christmas time when you want to consolidate all the christmas songs and pop them over to the living room mm-hmm. uh-huh um all right jed what have you got to ask hey guys this is jed um i actually just left a message about one issue and i'm leaving a completely separate one huh. so two calls in two minutes um but I've been having an issue for about two to four years with iTunes, and it won't quit. Uh, that's not true. It does quit. It just immediately restarts. When I do a software update, I need to kind of make, like sit on the force quit and force quit about five times before it will finally even take that it quit to do the software update. There used to be an issue with iWow, I think was the name of it, and I read all the instructions recovered of that, and that fixed it for a little while. And I checked the dashboard thing. I think you had talked about that in a previous episode to make sure nothing was running. And I don't see anything. My dashboard's not running on that Mac, actually. Um, and, you know, I am connected remotely from here and there, but I've tried disconnecting everything. Um, and what's weird is, even if the, after I forced quit, you'd think when I restarted and quit again, nothing's connected yet. So it would be fine, but no, that doesn't help it. Um, I have yet to try doing it with a different user in the same library, but besides, so maybe I should try that, but besides that, I just cannot figure out for the life of me what it is. It's just annoying. It's not earth-shatteringly bad, but it doesn't quit. And I looked in the console, and it doesn't say a thing. It just says shut down or force shut down, depending on what I do, and that's it. Um, sometimes an iPod is connected, so I tried disconnecting iPods. I tried disconnecting the iPod docs, everything. So, I wonder if you had any ideas. Kind of not expecting one, but I thought I'd reach out and ask you guys. Thanks for the show. Uh, my info. All right, and we'll cut you off there. So, yeah, so this is interesting. You know, my first thought, of course, John, was, well, let's check the console log because something has to report. And I still feel like there's got to be something out there um, because it, it's some job is triggering, right, to to cause iTunes to, to start up. I, you know, I... I the the ideas I've got on this one are uh, check launch agents and uh, and launch you know and maybe maybe use Lingon to take a look at launch D Lingon is a, a program that'll let you manage the the whole system 
launch D process, which yeah. is kind of the, the granddaddy right. of right. everything. That's so good. that, you know, that's that, that right. or reinstall iTunes. Right. I mean, well, maybe, I suppose you could use a nice, uh, as we've discussed, a nice app deinstaller to get rid of all the cruft. Oh, would that work for iTunes? I guess it would. Uh, from what I've seen, these apps are, are pretty good. So whether it be, ah. you know, I think the, the two favorites we have are uh, uh, App Cleaner or App Delete. Um, at least the, uh, or I think, uh, Dave, you mentioned Hazel or what's the other? Uh, Mac Keeper. Oh, yeah, there's Mac tons Keeper. of them, right? Yeah. yeah, between those. So uh, there could be some cruft. Now I'll suggest something else, Dave. Yes. Which I hadn't even thought of until <laughs> until we started the show. But, hey, you know, Go. sometimes I'm inspired. So, pref panes. There's a pref pane that I really, really like called default apps. And you know, one thing it does, Dave, is it shows you. Uh, so this may be part of the troubleshooting process. I, I don't know if I can give an answer here. But one of the things is that in this pref pane, so it has a number of... Ta- so this pref pane lets you dig into the 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 guts of the OS to see when you do this, what happens or what applications map to what extensions or what extensions map to what applications. And the thing is, Dave, this shows there is a tab that has apps. And one of the apps listed in this, Dave, is iTunes. And if you click on iTunes under the apps thing in default apps, you will see a list of URLs, UTIs, and file types that launch iTunes. So you may want to look at this just to see what, if anything, is causing iTunes to launch. Because that's, to me, what's happening. There is a document. Somebody somewhere is launching a document that iTunes thinks it should open. And that's what's well, happening. Well, yeah, it's, that, either, uh, it's either that. Or it's, it's a place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think he mentioned that he had iWow installed, which is a plug-in or an enhancement for iTunes. And I well, wonder... You could whack that with a... Yeah, with an uninstaller. Yeah. Maybe there's some cruft there that's just maybe it's being. Well, he said he ambitious. uninstalled it and he went through the process to uninstall it. But, you know, if that was causing this before, uh, that's sure. the first place I'd start, even if I was certain I got rid of it. Uh, because, you know, that, if, if that's a if that's a known source of this mm-hmm. issue that I would definitely, you know, check that out. Maybe maybe reinstall it and uninstall it again just so that, you know. It, it blow, puts everything out there and sets it the way it's supposed to be and then unsets it as it, as it pulls it all out. That's, so that's all I got. Uh, gazelle.com, John. Our yes. third sponsor for this show. Awesome. It's so much fun. Just visit gazelle.com and, uh, and start typing in the names of your... Uh, of your devices that you kind of have. We all have these, right? The pile of, of old, you know, maybe an old iPod, an old cell phone, certainly uh, maybe a, uh, maybe you just upgraded to the, uh, you know, to a Verizon iPhone and you've got like your old Motorola razor. That's not really that old. Well, you can probably get some cash for it, right? You, you just go and, and type this in. It doesn't cost anything to, uh, to go and search gazelle. In fact, it doesn't cost anything at all until, well, until you send them your, your stuff and they pay you, uh, you go there, you put in what you got. It asks you some questions. Do you have the cables? Is it damaged? Does it work? Et cetera, et cetera. You go through that and then they'll tell you, okay, if uh, the device is what you say it is, this is what we're going to pay you for it. If you want it, say yes, they'll, uh, you know, they'll cover the shipping and, uh, and they'll pay you and that it just works. Um, 
And if they get it and decide the conditions different, either better or worse than what you said, then you have the option to bail out or, or take whatever their, uh, whatever their offer is. So it's a uh, gazelle.com highly recommend it. Lots of fun. And, uh, yeah, gazelle.com. It's just fun to play with every, every, you know, every month when their sponsorship comes up, I always think, oh yeah, I found that other device. Let me see if I can send that off to them. And I go and I look and I find, like, oh, great. Cool. 20 bucks. Great. Gazelle.com. <laughs> it's 20 bucks, you know, but sometimes it's more, right? I mean, it depends on what it is. You know, if you send them an iPad, you're probably going to get, you know, two, 300 bucks. Well, and, and I saw them in my travels, uh, my media travels, Dave. Oh, you did. Cool. Well, they're very popular. Yeah. No, for, for, uh, you know, for, for popular devices. I mean, people love them. Yep. Yeah. Quick right. and easy. Yeah. That's the feedback I got. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. All right. Uh, another iTunes question here, John Richard writes, mm. I recently made a corporate purchase of final cut pro X or 10 from the, uh, Mac app store with my company credit card. At the time I made the purchase, I per I had a personal iTunes gift card balance of 70 bucks. Surprisingly, the Final Cut Pro 10 purchase grabbed my personal $70 credit from the iTunes store and only charged the difference to my company credit card. I filed a problem ticket with the iTunes store and was told this was standard procedure and that the only resolution is to get a $70 refund from my company. As you might imagine, this will be a huge hassle for me. Why should Mac OS 10 app store purchases have anything to do with iTunes store account balances? How is it possible to keep personal and corporate transactions separate in the OS 10 app store? So here is the crux of the question. You might be tempted to suggest setting up a uh, separate iTunes account for the personal and corporate purchases, but I already gave this a try and it did not work for me. Every time I connected an iDevice, I'd get an error message that claimed the device was linked to another account and I would, it would be wiped if proceeded. Okay. So you're, you're right. You want to set up separate iTunes store accounts, but there's no reason that those have to then sync to, uh, to, to different Macs or different devices. Um, and of course you're talking about Mac apps, but you, you talk about that the device would have to be wiped. So clearly you've been through this before with iOS apps too. Uh, you can have multiple iTunes accounts feeding apps into the same device. Uh, I do it constantly. My wife and I each have an account and we don't buy the same things. You know, she buys it. I copy it to mine. I buy it. She copies it to hers. In fact, we have iTunes home sharing doing that automatically for us. And, and it works. Uh, it's no problem. The only problem is that, you know, occasionally I have to put in her password when updating an app or she has to put in mine, uh, vice versa. But you, iTunes will see it. So I think what it sounds like you did was you created separate iTunes libraries uh, for the different apps. And that would cause you, you know, you can only sync your iDevice to one iTunes library at any given point in time. But uh, but that's not that's not necessary. You can have different iTunes accounts managed from within uh, within one copy of iTunes. And in fact, if you go to the iTunes store. So you go into iTunes, you click on iTunes store in the upper right. It'll show you the email address of the account that you're currently logged in as you can change that. You can just click on it and sign in as a different account and it works just fine. So, so that, that is, I believe that is your answer, Richard. And I, I think that will solve it at least, you know, going forward, it won't help you with the 70 bucks you got to squeeze out of your company, but I'm sure in the end they'll, I'm sure in the end they'll cover it. At least I yeah. hope so. Any I'm not thrilled on here, though, because, well, my thought is as follows, is when they launched the App Store, I noticed this due to my little pal, little yep. snitch. 
they are, as far as I can tell, at least at the point that they initially launched the App Store, they are basically using the iTunes payment infrastructure. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Mac App Store and the iTunes Store, yeah. it's all the same. It's one account. Because I saw yeah. it, yeah, because I saw it when it made an attempt. So when I started the App Store and it made an attempt to go reach out on the network, it was connecting to blahblah.itunes.com. And I was like, right. Uh, oh, yeah, no. no. Okay. So, uh, uh, I mean, it, it makes sense for Apple to do that. They have an established payment infrastructure through iTunes that's huge. Right. So and why make another accounts. one? Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. So why create another one? On the other hand, one of the downsides is what we just saw here with Richard, <laughs> is that it may draw on funds from right. what some may consider the wrong account. So. Right. So maybe a finger well, and in his case, Apple to to I mean, no, I, I, I think there should be an ability, Dave. I don't know about you, but to have separate app store and iTunes accounts, one well, there for are. music, one for apps. You can you can totally do that. You can just just set up different accounts. That's easy. His complaint. Uh, was no, that no, they, no, 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 no. Uh, if you're using this. Uh, wait, are, are you saying if I use the same Apple ID? I can set up separate accounts on the App Store and iTunes? No, but you just go into the App Store and choose sign in and use a different account. You can be logged in in iTunes okay. in do one you, do, and the App do you Store see the other. Do you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah, you can't use I would the same like, email I would address. Like, uh, yeah, I would like the ability to use my Apple ID for iTunes purchases and App Store. And I think that's what he's saying, and I don't think that's possible now. Is, is no, that yeah, cor- no, he, yeah, he totally can. Yeah. He can totally really? do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works fine. It's the same account. His his iTunes credit is his App Store credit. Uh, I mean, it's it's everywhere. No, his his issue is that it. I mean, his his basic issue that he's trying to solve is that he had a gift card balance and Apple. I, I you know, understand. Apple but, spent but, that before he was ready. Right. But, but, am I, am I, uh, what I'm saying is that the, the as far as I can tell, there is not a separate App Store repository and iTunes repository. Correct. Okay. That, that's what I'm saying. And I think maybe that should be the case. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> well, Apple's that's why I'm saying maybe, maybe should, maybe should escalate from a finger wag to a fish shake at Apple. Well, no, why would I mean, you want this people- different? Why do you, I mean, why would you want different accounts? Why, why would you want, um, why Dave, would you want, I would like to, I would like to give you a gift of music. Or okay. I would like to give you a gift of applications. Okay. Should I be able to differentiate those or just lump them all into one? I, I oh, just see it as a shortcoming like of the end. A gift card? Correct. Oh, yeah. It's just right. It's just the iTunes store gift card. Just like the Amazon gift card. You can't pick what people are going to buy with it. Right. But if you wanted to give me the gift of a particular app or a particular piece of music that you can right. do. Right. Because okay. you could buy it. And then All right, but do, you, do you see where I'm going? No, I don't. I don't see why you would want these to be separate and yet related to the same email address. I mean, it's I, I, okay, I, I we're, it's we're on different. Use case. All right. We're in, we're in different worlds then. Yeah. I may want to give somebody just the gift of apps or music. But, and I guess you're not seeing a need for that. You want to give somebody a gift card to go buy apps. Correct. But, but, they, get, but they get to music. pick the app. Sure. Okay, so you're not you, you don't want to give them a, a specific app as a gift. You want to just give them cash that only can be used for apps. Correct. Yeah, I think I think a very limited use case. 
gift cards are stupid anyway. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, I couldn't really think <laughs> about your gift. So, uh, I, here's money, but you can only spend it on the things I want you to spend it on. That's no, kind of like uh, uh, you see where I'm going here? Come on. No. No. Work with me, man. Okay. All right. Yes, I see where you're going. All right. So you're saying, uh, uh, all right. So any <laughs> gift card to any Apple store should be applicable to any Apple store that they offer, whether it be iTunes or App Store. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. All right. Yeah. It's just, oh, and if you want it to be different, I, I mean, it, yeah, it's gift cards. It's stupid anyway. Nah. All right. <laughs> What's next? Um, Giles. Giles writes. I'm the proud owner of a new 27 inch iMac with a souped up i7 processor, eight gigs of RAM and two drives, a 256 gig solid state drive and a one terabyte spinning drive. It sounds like somebody had a good year. Uh, Giles continues. My experiences with an SSD and a MacBook air convinced me to go for this option as it's lightning fast. The argument for dual drives makes sense to me. OS apps and preferences, the nuts and bolts, if you like, on the faster but smaller SSD, while the bulk of your content, documents, media, etc. lives on the spinning hard drive. Indeed, Apple themselves makes a deal out of this on the iMac store site and says, if you configure your iMac with both the solid state drive and a serial ATA hard drive, it will come pre-formatted, pre-formatted with Mac OS X and all your applications on the solid state drive. Then you can use the hard drive for videos, photos, and other files. Uh, Giles continues. However, they offer no guidance as I can find as to the recommended way of doing this because the SSD comes with all the system files, OS applications, and most crucially, crucially user home folders. It means the default location for everything, including music, documents, pictures, and movies is the SSD. So how to move these over to the hard drive, ensuring that the default save locations are to the hard drive but without botching up the home folder for the OS to work seamlessly. I should also mention that my current setup involves keeping most of my raw media on a two terabyte uh, external hard drive. And this runs many hundreds of yards, uh, many hundred runs to many hundreds of gigabytes in size. Uh, Looking online, I've seen mention of using SIM links to the individual folders, something I'm happy with as I've been using symbolic linker with Dropbox for some time. Uh, or alternatively going into system preferences and selecting the advanced option on a user account to be taken through the slightly scary looking window where you can move the default location of the user folder. Uh, the solution which involves moving the entire home folder sounds like a more complete solution, but won't there be stuff in the library and aperture libraries, for instance, that would benefit from being on the much faster SSD. Okay. Uh, and then he talks about how he phoned Apple Care. He says, uh, so I have three options, leave everything on the SSD and move my stuff at a later date. If capacity becomes a problem, uh, keep documents, music, pictures, and movies on the hard drive and create SIM links back to the SSD and, or move the, uh, hold the, the whole other user folder to the hard drive. Okay. So those are your three options. And of course he left, uh, left open for, uh, us to fill in number four. Uh, so this is good. It's actually good that Apple's selling things this way because it, you know, it, it, it sets you up for what you're going to want anyway down the road, which is, you know, a fast drive to boot from and then a large drive to store your data to. And the two need not necessarily be uh, the same drive, but it does make it interesting uh, for, I would, I would, uh, I would actually do, I, I'd stay away from sim links as much as possible. Um, 
for iTunes, you can actually change the iTunes media folder location in iTunes. And if you want, you can have it move the files for you. There's a knowledge base article about this that we'll link to. But uh, if you go into iTunes preferences advanced, uh, you can set the iTunes media folder location there. So you can just set that to be on your one terabyte drive. And then every time you launch iTunes, it's going to see that and you're happy. Uh, ensure on that same preference panel that uh, the keep iTunes media folder organized and copy files to the iTunes media folder when adding to library are checked. Uh, the, the, the knowledge base article that we'll link to has instructions on actually moving your files over. You can either copy the iTunes media folder manually, or you can go through the whole consolidate files procedure, which will copy them from iTunes, but then you still need to go back and, and delete them uh, from the disc from the original disc. Uh, and then with with uh, with iPhoto, you can do something similar. So, so iTunes will let you point to wherever you want for your music. Uh, iPhoto, mm-hmm. you can do the same thing. If you hold down Option key, right when you start up iPhoto, uh, it uh, it'll let you create or open an iPhoto library that lives anywhere. Or you could also use iPhoto Library Manager from Fat Cat Software to uh, to manage if you wanted it in multiple places for whatever reason. Will Aperture do the same thing, John? Absolutely. Okay, good. That's good. Is yeah. it the same and way? It- I'm pretty sure it's the same way. No, hmm. can, so you're saying option. Option no, when, right now. when you launch. Yeah. No, we'll try it right now. But, but, but no, the same thing. So, so a lot of the Apple apps will... Oh, here we go. I just launched Aperture. Held it down. What library do you want Aperture to use? Perfect. Yes. Yeah, the answer great. is yes. So, and especially Aperture or iPhoto or, or the other, uh, I guess, uh, uh, iMovie. Similar. I, I, I think all of them let you do this, Dave. Yeah. Is to say, okay, well, I want to put my library or yeah. So, so you may have to do a, so it may not come that way, but you, you, you can change the behavior of the app to, to look somewhere else for the, uh, for the library. So, yep. Um, as far as documents, you know, the, there's, you, there's no reason you have to go and put things uh, in your documents folder, in your home folder, you could create a documents folder elsewhere. Uh, I happen to create mine inside my Dropbox, as I've talked about. And what I do is uh, is I create a uh, a Finder shortcut, a Finder sidebar shortcut. I just drag my mm. documents folder over into the places in my Finder sidebar, and mm. uh, I call my folder Dave's Files, and I can click on it, and it brings me there. And it doesn't really matter whether it's on one drive or another or what. It just works. And you can do it with subfolders of it. So I, I navigate my finder using places. And then at that point, it doesn't matter where the, where the actual data is stored. It makes, makes life pretty easy for me. I don't tend to have a, uh, yeah. a problem with it. You can use default folder I, as well. Oh, sure. You know, oh, that's our favorite. But I, I would say in general, I mean, when you're thinking about file size, I mean, that that's where you're going to get the big boost from the SSD. So for things like Final Cut or iMovie, definitely. I would say if you're doing anything of any size, sure, put that on the SSD. Photos, yeah, if you got a big library, same thing. iPhoto or Aperture. Like you're saying, Dave, documents? Mm, I don't yeah, well, this I, is I actually kind of backwards from, from what he wants to do. He wants to store his big stuff mm. off elsewhere, if necessary. But, you know, and that's what no, I do. I'm, I'm just thinking through it because, yeah, if, if I was going to... Well, it's a, it's a good discussion. I mean, the SSD is fast, but it's limited. So yeah, you got to, you got to right. value. Yeah. Maybe only keep current projects there, you know, and, and mm-hmm, archive mm-hmm, your other mm-hmm. stuff off so that you've got room. That, yeah. That, that actually, that's actually a really good idea. Maybe. No, I'm thinking about that. 
Yeah, I mean, you could store the, you know, the Wampin projects. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Well, you know, like you said, with a lot of things, you got to weigh, you know, I mean, performance versus, yeah, I guess you got to weigh the size it's going to take versus the performance that you want. I mean, for big Wampin projects, you may want to have them on the SSD because you're going to get the, the benefit of the speed. On the other hand, they're going to take up a lot of the space. My, so. my, my guess is that most people will need somewhere between 100 and 150 gigs for mm. your system and all your apps and, you know, to breathe easy. That that's, okay. um, I, you know, and so which means that if you're if you're willing to actively manage it, you can probably mm-hmm. get away with, you know, running easily off of 128 gig SSD. But uh, which, you know, which means for for Giles here, maybe. Maybe that that's maybe that's going to leave him with a couple hundred megs or or at least a hundred megs worth of quote unquote play space, you know, on the SSD. Sure. So you know that's that's probably enough for at least most of the the projects that you're going to work on. Yeah, or things we're hinting at. So active projects, the things that you're working on, right. You may want to put in the SSD, and then when yeah, when they're, when they're in the background, then you archive them to the uh, rotational hard yep. drive. But your music and stuff, your iTunes library absolutely keep that off on the, on the regular yeah. hard drive. The, you, you do oh, not yeah, need the speed. Yeah. Well, memory. yeah, the files are small and you're not streaming. You're not looking to get that data really any faster than it can play. So for your music files, that might be 256 K per second, right? If that, if mm. they're 256 K files, geez, even a, you know, a, a, a three and a half inch floppy could probably deliver at that rate. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, a what? <laughs> a what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Who are you? Yeah. Can we, can we talk about elephant branded discs? Anybody remember those? Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, speaking of all that stuff, you know what? Let's jump way back. We have a couple of cool things found, but uh, because I mentioned elephant discs, we're going to jump all the way back to the oldest, uh, the oldest reaching one that we we've heard recently. Uh, Damien writes, I'm a little behind on listening to Mac Geekab, uh, but I'm catching up one per day. In your wrap-up of Emacs versus VIM, it was mentioned that there was a Ferris game in Emacs. There is, although I forget the switch as to how to open it. There's another game in Emacs called Who Done It. The command line is Emacs space dash batch space dash L space done it. D-U-N-N-E-T. And it's a text adventure. Uh, the game is what I use Emacs for mostly. I was intru- introduced to and still usually use VIM for command line text editing, although I use Text Wrangler 99% of the time. So that's pretty cool. Uh, a, a little game hidden inside Emacs. That's, uh, I love this stuff. This is as far as I know, Emacs, for. I think, actually has a compiler built into it. I mean, Emacs is the kitchen sink of editors. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to get old school, to me, Ed is the editor that real men use and women, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No reason why it's really, right? it's really not an editor at all. <laughs> very uh, minimal, very minimal, very, very minimal. Is, again, Emacs and VI. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we can't touch that. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Uh, all right. And then lastly, Jeff wrote us with something called the, uh, well, he says, coming from a Windows environment, I'm used to locking my personal computer at work every time I get up from my desk for security reasons. When I switched to a Mac two years ago at home, I wanted the same feature, but never really looked too hard for it until now. The other day, I discovered a new Mac OS X app that lets you lock your Mac called Lock Screen 2. 
that does the job nicely. Okay, it might not be new, but this new version is new to the Mac App Store. Lock screen 2 unlocks your desktop just like on a Windows PC, but with what looks like an iOS device lock screen. You have the time and date at the top, your customizable wallpaper, and swipe here to unlock bar at the bottom, which is also customizable to say anything now you might ask yourself swipe to unlock on my mac yes to use the to swipe you use the keyboard to swipe and that is also customizable so that's pretty cool thanks jeff that's uh we like that that's that's fun stuff it's 199 in the mac app store so uh so go check that out it's they say it's regularly 499 but now you know on sale now special today only but not not just today john you got anything else to uh well, about uh, the poor man's version of that is you go into Prefane Security General, require password immediately after screen, after sleep That's true. or screensaver begins. That's true. So, yeah. but no, it's nice to have a, a, a program that does this because, yes, you, you never know who's going to come by your computer and and. Uh, that's yeah. all I'll say. Yeah, that's true. It's all true. I know is when I was working in the corporate workplace, yes, we would take interns who would not listen to us and we would we would do various things when they were logged in. Yeah, that's fun. That's yeah, fun. not for them, but but for, for the rest of us. <laughs> and yeah. then they would learn. Yes, you lock your screen. And yeah, it's good practice. If you're going to walk away from your machine for more than five seconds. Yeah. Yeah, lock it. Well, unless you're in a house alone. But if you're in a corporate workplace or a nah, household, I don't know. Depends on how much you trust your family. Anyways. <laughs> you're speaking of family, Dave. You know, I consider everybody who's listening to this to be our, our podcasting family. And, you know, a lot of things families do is they keep in touch. And if you want to keep in touch with us, Dave, one thing you could do is you can get on the telephone. And how would you do that? The best way to call is 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 4335. And you can email us. And if I wanted to email us with a question, a comment, praise, criticism, whatever, I would send an email to feedback at MacGeekab.com. Yeah. Feedback at MacGeekab.com. No, 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 no. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can Skype us at MacGeekGab, and uh, and you can send in your iTunes comments. We can't reply to them, but uh, but we can see them, and all the other potential listeners can see them, and that's a good thing, especially when they are uh, positive and encouraging. We, we certainly appreciate that. So. And there's more, Dave. Oh, my gosh. There's... Well, for now, you know, it's kind of trendy right now, but Facebook. Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. But in addition to that... Twitter. Twitter. On Twitter, Dave is Dave Hamilton. I am John F. Braun, Pilot Pete, who is not here, but he's flying somewhere, somehow. Pilot Pete. News about the podcast is MacGeekab and Mac Observer. And, and who else? Oh, well, of course, Michael Johnston. Yeah, and he's Michael Johnston. He's the man who creates the AAC for us. It doesn't get any better than this, folks. Uh... Yeah, well, it could. It. We could have 3D VR-based Mackie Cab, but... I don't know about that, John. 3D VR-based? <laughs> would, would our listeners actually want that? Let us know via one of the prior, previously mentioned feedback mechanisms. Cashfly.com does, pre, does uh, provide all the bandwidth. We certainly appreciate that. 
the podcast marketplace includes the A5 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebone Software, PDF Pen from Smile, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and Drobo. Have a great week. They're actually going to be back later this week. Don't get caught.